Welcome to Local Share Green Action Podcast. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a 501c3 nonprofit providing tools and resources for people that are looking for ways to take even more successful local action that makes a difference for our people and our planet. Today on our podcast, I'm speaking with someone who is an environmental advocate and ecosystem restorer who planned, organized, and planted the very first Milwaukee urban forest on the East Coast of the United States. I'm speaking with Maya Dada. Maya Dada is an environmental advocate and an ecosystem restorer working to spread the understanding of key role of biodiversity in shaping the climate, water, carbon, nutrient, and energy cycles we rely on. She has organized and installed, again, the very first Milwaukee Forest on the East Coast. Welcome to the show, Maya. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited to speak with you and learn more about your path of action, how you came to to taking on this project and helping people learn more about eco-restoration. So so what planted the seeds for you initially um, to want to start taking some kind of green uh, planet-friendly action originally? That's a really um, (laughs) question I could go into all kinds of depth with, but I I suppose the shortish answer is, um, you know, I'd always been aware of of climate change and global warming, you know, growing up, it was sort of part of our understanding of this is a challenge that is imminent. This is something I was always told, you know, this is something your generation will take on, your generation will fix. And all of that I found pretty overwhelming, um, but I definitely had that sense of, you know, this is really important. Um, this is not just about you know, nature or climate or earth in the abstract. This is about people and their lives. This is about, um, you know, going into my adulthood. Um, what is the earth going to look like and and what is what is what are my future prospects on it and so i think the seeds were planted early of of wanting to do something around climate but shared a couple of times i i struggled a little bit with how to to work with that or even just how to kind of level with the intensity of you know fear and doom and these really intense prognoses um so I ultimately, um, you know, I started working as like a young professional in tech um, and did that for a couple of years and ended up pivoting to to working in climate after sort of reaching a breaking point of this matters so much to me. This is something I really, really care about. And it's going to be, it's going to feel worse to know about this information and not take action than it is to directly interface with with some solutions. So, you know, that got me started on, on looking into what kind of work I could do, realizing, you know, there is a wide variety of ways to to work on climate, whether that's in, you know, the growing of food or trying to help with water management and cycling, whether it's energy and energy efficiency. Um, and I, I stumbled upon biodiversity for a livable climate, bio for climate, where I now work and just started volunteering um, by by doing kind of research analysis. And slowly um, I started working there. My role started to grow. And eventually I got into direct restoration through 
these urban pocket forests, Milwaukee forests, um, which have been, you know, such a great way to both take direct action and then spread some of that understanding that biodiversity, soil health, you know, water cycles, all of these pieces are are absolutely key and part of this kind of holistic regulation of climate and the conditions of life. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you provide maybe just like an overview of um, Milwaukee forest concepts and for those who might not be familiar? Absolutely. So uh, the Milwaukee method was pioneered by a Japanese botanist and ecologist, Dr. Kira Milwaukee, um, in the 70s, in fact. So this has been around for quite some time. Um, and it is a way of kind of reforesting or aforesting areas um, that have been degraded and trying to restore the natural ecosystem there. So um, in short, the Milwaukee forest is this kind of dense, biodiverse, um, reestablished, like quasi-natural forest that um, you know recreates the living forest floor, um, some of the kind of relationships and species that would belong in the forest of an area and kind of prepares plants and grows these forests uh, quite quickly and quite resiliently. So this kind of method has really caught on around the world in the last five, 10 years. Um, a couple of different waves have really popularized this in India through Shubhendu Sharma and his work um, in Europe. Africa, North and South America, and it's really kind of come to all of the continents now. And um, we were really honored and, and excited to, to plant the first in the Northeast um, U.S. and really, really are watching now in the past few years the kind of explosive growth of, of interest and momentum here in the U.S., which has sort of lagged on, on this adoption. Yeah, I, I the thing that so impressed me is just that it can grow 10 times faster than a normal forest. And that's just like, it's really mind-boggling when you think that when it's 10 years old, it's going to look like a 100-year-old forest. That's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the growth rates are really tremendous. It varies kind of by climate and by species um, of, of what's planted and what's involved. But part of the method essentially is trying to do some of the work that a natural um, forest ecosystem would do over time. So the idea is if you had kind of bare ground, um, no forest, no nothing, you have a logged area or some kind of forest ecosystem that's been um, degraded and destroyed. If you just kept bare ground there and didn't intervene, over time, plants and microbes um, and fungi would come and kind of colonize the area. They would establish themselves, start changing the soil chemistry and biology and that would tend towards greater complexity. New species get to move in as new nutrients become available, more water becomes available. And over a period of kind of 100 to 200 years, um, that goes from kind of low growth and annual um, perennial shrubs to kind of pioneering trees to eventually a climax for its forest ecosystem. That climax being just kind of the stable community of life there. So the idea is, can we intervene um, as kind of students of the ecosystem and do some of that work that those early species um, and communities are doing um, to really prepare for a climax forest and then plant 
those species directly with a kind of appropriate density and relationships. And in that way, really accelerate the establishment of that community. Yeah, I find that so interesting. I think, isn't it, that like by planting them densely, you're kind of forcing that kind of competition where some species are going to push forward more quickly. So it's really interesting, the science behind all that. Absolutely. And it's a bit competition of, you know, that drive for, for sunlight and for upward growth and also um there's collaboration there too of this really kind of dense root network uh, along with yeah, those microbes and those fungi and the invertebrates and all that's living in the soil. That's really facilitating the resilience and robustness and the, the growth on that end too, because um, that's how plants are able to communicate and trade resources and um, you know, warn one another when pathogens are in the system. So it's really amazing what we're learning about kind of the uh, symbiosis involved as well as uh, the, the kind of purely competitive natural selection view. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. So could you walk us through maybe the planning process or well let's let's before we go into that, um, what inspired you to pursue the Milwaukee urban forest in the Boston area to begin with? Yeah, so my organization, Bio for Climate, um, was originally founded in Cambridge, though we've got people and um, kind of contributors uh, all over the country and all over the world, in fact, but we've kind of had this strong community uh, in Cambridge. And therefore, when we were first looking into this, uh, it seemed like a natural place to kind of take this local action. Uh, my colleague, who is the associate director at the time, Paula Phipps, she had been a longtime activist with some really deep roots in Cambridge um, with the Climate Protection Action Committee. And uh, we thought, you know, this is a place where there's there seems to be this appetite and Cambridge Urban Forestry, which we worked with really closely on our first two projects and particularly, you know, the first, this pioneering project. Part of the reasoning for for starting up in the Boston area in Cambridge, uh, one was kind of the deep connections with other, you know, climate action groups and the really strong kind of citizenry that is is pushing for climate action. And then the Cambridge Urban Forestry Department, who we worked with closely on, on these projects, particularly um, Dan He, the first one, they really needed to put a lot of investment forward. When we were considering doing this, we identified in their urban forestry master plan, you know, some of these goals that seemed kind of perfectly aligned with a Milwaukee pocket forest. You know, they had wanted to not only increase the number of trees in the tree canopy, but we're starting to look at things like ecosystem services, like biodiversity uh, and soil health and, and these kind of really important aspects that see that forests are not just trees, that they're really full systems. And so we were able to kind of leverage that to share with our partners in, in Cambridge, you know, this is why you should take interest. This is why it might align. And, and they were, you know, very open to, to receiving that, um, very interested. So they ended up being really excellent partners to, to work with on this. So, so you partnered and now you're kind of starting to make plans. So what are some of the many things that I'm sure you had to like keep in mind in the process of, of putting that together? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of kind of considerations in in planning the first forest. Um, one was identifying um, Cambridge as as a partner, the city. Um, another really crucial one in the process was, you know, we hadn't done a Milwaukee forest before. We had been kind of a, an organization that was focused on education and advocacy and sharing ecosystem restoration solutions, but we really needed guidance on on the Milwaukee method itself. So we first, I believe, got in touch with SUGI, um, which is a global organization that supports Milwaukee forest plantings, and they um, connected us with Ethan Bryson and Natural Urban Forests, his company. So he was, I think at the time, the only U.S.-based Milwaukee forest maker and so he led kind of the technical aspects of planning the Danahee Forest, um, which was really essential. So um, with those two kind of partnerships in place, we looked first at just finding a site, which um, is a pretty, pretty basic first step, even before invoking any of the steps of the method of kind of soil analysis, species selection, um, soil preparation. You have to know where you're planting and what you're dealing with there. So we put together this list of about 40 or 50 sites. We were looking at public land primarily um, because we wanted to, we thought, you know, working with the city might be the best kind of pilot for a project like this if we wanted more wide scale adoption. And we looked at things like, you know, low existing tree canopy where we had issues of Kind of environmental injustice of both heat concentration, high pollution, access to um, or accessibility to the public near schools, near libraries, um, existing recreation facilities. And we had the kind of the technical aspects too of, you know, wanting um, a water source nearby um, where possible wanting to plant in areas that were not full of existing trees because you don't want to actually disturb living plant communities where they are and kind of what what kind of conditions we could expect there. So with that list, um, we worked with our partners in Cambridge and they were so helpful in identifying things like utility lines and projects that, places that were under projects already and you know, might be a good candidate, but would be tied up in construction for two, three years. And we ended up um, selecting the Danahy site based on kind of those criteria and the availability. You know, we, we were planning this from really the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021. And they shared that there were a couple of sites um, in the Danahy Park area that we could do in 2021 or we could wait till the following spring. And we thought, you know, let's let's do this, let's do this pilot and, um, you know, build from there. And that was kind of how we wound up um, with the, the forest in the background here. And so how wide is it? So this is kind of a circle of about 4,000 square feet total in area. So my mental math is not good for what that diameter is, um, but we, yeah, we have this, this kind of circular area and it ended up being kind of on the side of a hill, kind of at the, the main crossroads of, um, of a few paths in this park right next to the picnic area there and adjacent to some of the sports fields. So it's, you know, kind of smack uh, 
front and center when you enter the park, which is which is really neat because a lot of people come by, a lot of people have picnics right there. Um, so the, the visibility and that kind of educational potential is is really quite great. The gentleman that you just mentioned that had some experience in the United States, was he in that area? I mean, was he familiar with the Northeast and the tree species and things like that that were a good fit for that? Or Yeah, so uh, Ethan has been working primarily on the West Coast, um, but had worked with both uh, folks in kind of the city and their um, kind of reviewed the plant selection with them, as well as indigenous folks of the Yakima Nation out west. And in part, um, kind of, they helped bridge a connection to the um, Mashpee Wampanoag peoples here in um, kind of the, the Massachusetts area. And so kind of with these partnerships was able to identify, you know, some of the species that, you know, might otherwise be overlooked in historical survey. So, you know, the the Milwaukee method is one of the really essential steps. And it in part entails kind of doing field surveys of where you have old growth forest or um, natural established um, kind of preserved areas, really looking at what species are living there, how they're succeeding, what their relationships are like, what their densities are like, but also kind of filling that in with historical knowledge of, you know, prior to um, logging operations or wide-scale conversion to agricultural land, what was the composition? So it, it's kind of a bit of a mixed strategy for establishing that. But he, yeah, I think the selection there, you know, it was a really good kind of distribution and a, a biodiverse distribution of the species that we would want to see. And we've certainly... Um, Kind of learned in the process of the first few years of this forest life uh, what those relationships look like and you know where those things might want adjusting in in other plots so yeah okay yeah so then you've been learning a lot as you go along then so absolutely it, yeah i know like in in permaculture they talk about the different layers so trees and the lower trees and shrubs and vine layers and ground covers is it kind of similar is it that kind of multi-level approach with natives? Yeah, so, so part of the species selection is is um, looking at establishing kind of all of those vertical layers of the forest. Generally, we don't directly plant ground cover. Um, we start with kind of the shrub level, subtree, tree canopy, um, primarily because when we're preparing the soil, when we're planting these directly, a lot of those uh, kind of taller trees and um, climax species are a little bit slower growing. And so we don't want to kind of smother that out or suffocate with, with fast growing ground cover. But they tend to um, kind of come in and seed themselves um, over the first few years anyway. So that's kind of one approach to, to making sure you have that complexity. But it, it is absolutely necessary to have all of those levels of the forest because, you know, my my colleague Hannah Lewis, who wrote a really excellent book on this, in fact, um, part of the story of how we came to this work um, was through her kind of findings and research about the Miyawaki method. Um, but she likes to describe um, the way that Miyawaki forests create a microclimate as kind of building a house. So, you know, your very tall canopy, 
it's kind of that that roof uh, that will eventually create um, sort of that shade trapping some of the moisture and then you need um, those layers as part of the walls of your house of again kind of insulating the area uh, and really cycling the water within it and really making use of kind of every inch is possible um, that's what nature does is kind of create enough complexity to really use as much of the resources of water and sunlight and um, chemical nutrition as it can as efficiently as it can so that's that's really essential to the the design process that's awesome. I know originally when I was starting to hear about it, they were talking about two years supporting with, with irrigation. And then I've heard more recently, like three. So like, how did you all address the irrigation situation for this site? Yeah, so we've been looking at um, keeping it on for three. I mean, it'll be our third summer now um, to, or sorry, our sec yeah, our second summer and our third year of growth. And we'll be able to see kind of how it does um, in that in that process and where maybe we can kind of make adjustments and wean that early if if we want to. What we've done is with the city's support, you're able to tap into the existing irrigation lines in this site. Um, so because they're recreational areas, sports fields and things like that, there are irrigation lines, and they were able to, with a little bit of intervention, um, kind of create these these spray heads around the the area of the forest to provide some of that supplemental watering. And it's something that we do seasonally. You know, it depends on the climate that you're in of when and how you want to supply water. But it's really essential for support in the summer of 2022. Um, we had a pretty intense drought in this area. And that was the first kind of growing season for this forest. And it was so crucial to the survival that there is irrigation there. Um, and it, it really made a tremendous difference. And now that we've had kind of a, a wetter summer, um, you know, we had to provide much less water. And also the growth that we saw was was really tremendous. Okay. So when you say you had spray heads, were they in the area or just from the outside spraying in? From the outside spraying in, yeah, outside. around the perimeter. I was going to say it would be kind of hard to like maintain something in the center of the forest later. <laughs> Absolutely, because the density gets gets really intense. And so the other um, really big aspect of stewarding during the establishment period is kind of removing and encroaching growth. Um, some of the, you know, pioneering and those early successional species that um, you know we label weeds those those plants that are really trying to come in and make use of all the nutrition in the soil um, we have to come in and you know pull them out try not to disturb the site as much as possible in the process but even towards the end of this past year to do that maintenance in in this area uh, was a real kind of puzzle of moving within this this dense beautiful like lush growing forest so um, so in terms of maintenance it's like a few times during the summer or is it like more than that well we tend to try and set communities up with the expectation of going like passing through kind of once a month maybe even more frequently um, depending on the size of the site and and what you're 
kind of looking at. And that can be, you know, the more frequently you do it, the less intensive the work is uh, because you're just catching things um, much sooner. And then if you have a site where you don't have as much support, you could do something like a few times a season and you'll just have to like allocate a little bit more. The really key thing is just, you know, going by and monitoring and responding to the needs as you see them. Um, because for all of the, you know, prescription you can apply in this method, it's really about um, what the system is doing and, and how um, these species are working. And kind of with any ecological restoration, it's just responding to what you see, you know, much like in, in permaculture with the, the principles there. Um, it's really about what is your aim? What is your target for um, the restoration that you're doing? And then how can you respond to the system and, and iteratively um, work to um, make that restoration happen? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what partnerships or collaborations were essential um, to kind of execute the project? I mean, so like once Ethan had decided or helped work with other people to make a plan of like what types of, of trees, et cetera, were needed, um, like did you have a place to go already that you knew about where they were going to grow these for you? And how far in advance did you need to have them planted, et cetera? Yeah, so we worked with the city on sourcing. So that was great because they had, you know, really strong established relationships um, with some, some pretty excellent local nurseries. Um, in addition to a couple of like other local growers who who grow from wild seed and just want to donate their plants to ecological restoration projects, which is awesome. So that really um, combined kind of created some nice genetic diversity. But in in all of those cases, actually, for this project, we didn't have anybody growing, you know, a year or two years in advance for the planting. Um, this was plant stock that they had been growing and was available. Um, now that we're doing kind of more of these projects and the demand is certainly surging, um, we need to be thinking a lot more about, you know, community growing efforts or supporting more local nurseries um, and even for bigger nurseries to kind of push them to do more native plants and more native plants grown from seed and grown from wild seed and in local ecotypes of those plants, um, because that is, you know, where I, I see a real crunch kind of happening or imminent um, around doing planting projects like this. So, you know, in this case, if you're going to be doing um, kind of planting from seed from scratch for a project, you know, that would need to be kind of one to two years out um, because we plant seedlings. Um, that are, are one to two years old. Um, and we plant them, you know, relatively small and relatively young. Um, and still there's, because it's a natural process, it takes time, so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in the processes you were kind of all bringing this project to fruition, were there other community organizations that you kind of reached out to and, and they collaborated in different respects? Like uh, one thought I had was in terms of kind of monitoring the uh, the life, the wildlife in that area and maybe like pollinators and things like that. Is there some collaborations there to kind of see how that's been enhanced through the project? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of 
you know, the, the planting and all the volunteer recruitment in that, we reached out to a lot of different local organizations. You know, there's an, a great organization, Green Cambridge, uh, Mothers Out Front, the Climate Protection Action Committee, um, local kind of community gardens and growing centers, um, some of the kind of faith-based institutions around that area, some of the schools around that area, and the Rotary Club, things like that. We, we gave sort of presentations and outreach and things like that to, to get folks involved. Based on that, uh, have been kind of running volunteer events and educational events um, with the people who were initially involved and people who kind of come on board um, getting interested in the project over time. We've also worked with um, a local university, Leslie University, at some of the biodiversity monitoring, um, in particular monitoring insect populations. Um, and we're, we're still looking to expand kind of citizen science, citizen science counts and things like that because um, that is such a rich and interesting area. And it's something that, um, you know, we monitor also kind of the growth rates, the survival rates, um, those aspects. But the most immediate change you can really see is in the biodiversity, in the pollinators that visit, in the life that visits. You know, even just the day after planting, um, kind of the core team went, went back um, to review it, and there is already this beautiful spider web in place, like kind of glistening with with dewdrops, and and it's like, oh yeah, life wants to be here, um, and so so that part is is really interesting and wonderful. And then in, in terms of other projects too, you know, we planted a second forest Cambridge in 2022, and then this past fall did Miyawaki Forest with Somerville High School and Natick High School. And so in, in both of those cases, you know, there was uh, a lot of kind of just talking with the schools themselves, um, those different city and town governments. Um, and there's a lot of kind of um, citizen action that, that motivated those, those plantings as well. Excellent. And so is the organization that you're working for kind of helping to coordinate, like moving forward, taking turns with like volunteer groups and things like that for maintenance or how is that kind of like working out? Yeah. So um, climate and a large part of my role in this kind of Milwaukee forest program is coordinating either with volunteers directly or other um, kind of partner groups to do maintenance, um, maintenance and monitoring um, and also coordinating with municipal partners which in every forest that we've planted so far have been kind of taking on the irrigation portion of this. But, you know, a lot of municipalities, when they're kind of approached with um, this, this novel proposition, um, we really want to make it as uh, simple and um, easy as possible. And so, you know, a Department of Public Works isn't necessarily like looking to do ongoing maintenance for like every summer for three years when you when you propose a project. And so not only does doing this with volunteers really um, achieve kind of the community engagement and stewardship aspect of this, but it also um, I think lightens the load on, you know, top down trying to have a, a municipality run this. So so having that that volunteer maintenance is really crucial. And it's such an opportunity too for 
really learning about the forest and seeing it change over time and all of the people who are involved in planting and then kind of come back through maintenance sessions um, are so excited to see the development and to have that pride of, you know, this wasn't here before and now it is and now I'm, I'm ensuring that it really establishes well and um, will kind of continue to, to grow and, you know, outlive any one of us in particular, which is, which is wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I was also curious, do you have like a anything to mark the area? Or like if somebody just walks into the park, do they have a way of knowing that this is what this is when they, I'm just curious. <laughs> yes, yeah, so signage um, for for the forest itself, so, like, just a brief explainer and then kind of links to find out more because a lot more information is, um, we can communicate it digitally. So we try to keep up with like the project updates, seasonal updates, photos, um, information on our website and um, kind of share that at each site as well. So people can understand what this is. And the fact that, you know, in the early years, um, the, you know, bed of saplings or the dense kind of brushy growth that you're seeing um, is not the final stage. It'll continue to develop. You'll, you'll really continue to see more and more um, complexity over time so so all of that is kind of a crucial part of engagement as well to to let people know you know this isn't just a simple planting or when people come by and they're like oh is this going to be you know a rose garden or something like no this is not a garden this is a forest it does have these do have some roses in them um, but but it's not your typical kind of manicured landscape space. And so have you all like considered something where maybe there was like a pathway through the center of it? I know some are doing some different designs. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I love um, that as a, as a way of engaging. In Danahee, which is our largest site so far, we did not include a pathway. And that was largely for that kind of availability and early adoption idea you know it was a discussion of we can talk about instituting a path but we will have to um, kind of ensure further regulations and delay the process a little bit which you know it it happens in different ways in different municipalities depending on kind of what um, what restrictions exist but in that case we we did not go for a path and the other sites that I've done since our second Cambridge Forest is a little bit smaller, um, so it didn't quite make sense to cut through. But there's some really nice um, pads with adjacent benches um, right at the site. Um, and similarly with the Natick and Somerville High Schools, um, we don't have paths through, but we have paths around. Um, but absolutely, it should be a consideration in any forest design. I would say, you know, if you're looking at a thousand square feet, which we generally consider like the minimum um, for, you know, a real microclimate, um, it's a little small for a path. But once you're going like 2,000 square feet or or beyond, having a space to kind of enter or you know a gathering space in the forest, those are really nice ways of kind of ensuring that that access and that ability for connection with with the species inside, with the life inside. That's cool. That's cool. And in that area, are they doing any kind of like 
citizen projects where they're encouraging like starting seedlings on their own like i know in raleigh i think they're using air pruning beds so that like citizens can grow literally hundreds of little seedlings is there anything like that going on in your area so there are some efforts uh doing some seed starting it's not I don't think anyone's really taken on a similar project. I looked into the one you mentioned, Project Pando, and I thought that was really great. Um, we have discussed ways that BioForClimate could support that with some local growers. Um, we haven't really expanded to like setting up an operation yet, um, mainly because of a lack of capacity. Um, but I think that's really a necessary next step for, for growing this movement. Um, we certainly have a lot of people who uh, like native plants or learning about native ecology or doing things like establishing um, kind of native pollinator gardens and meadows. But in terms of starting tree seedlings, um, it's just really a, a handful of different um, local growers that I'm aware of, at least. Um, but I would really love to either be able to take that on organizationally or, or support other organizations and people who are, because it's such a great way also to participate in a project. And we've talked about, you know, the potential for, for having school classes start seeds, um, you know, in third grade that by fifth grade they get to plant and, and really kind of participate in the full life cycle of the forest and eventually, you know, forage seeds back from an established planting. Yeah. So let me ask you in terms of like one of the things I thought was really interesting and I think it might be being handled differently in different areas of the world, but that aspect of bringing in soil life and increasing the microbial, uh, you know, the, all the good guys in the soil and that kind of thing. So at like what point do you really like consider that? I mean, I know there are organizations that are pretty much kind of handling things to clear an area before they start a replanting. They're kind of, you know, using herbicides and whatever else they can throw at it to kind of get rid of the invasives before, you know, they think about planting and often they aren't thinking about like microbial soil life and that kind of thing. So kind of where did you find a comfortable way of approaching it? From this project? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, certainly, uh, kind of my understanding of the Milwaukee method is really to be 100% natural and organic and not, you know, employ either synthetic fertilizers or synthetic kind of herbicides, pesticides, uh, the things that are killing off our partners in a successful natural ecosystem. Um, however, I have, uh, you know, in both the Cambridge projects and the Natick and Somerville, um, you know, we started just by removing the lawn there to be able to access the soil underneath and to, to mix in amendments. And um, in Somerville, we had a clearing also of um, some of those kind of invasive and encroaching species that, um, you know, so we, we pulled and in some cases transplanted and in other cases just composted um, some of the materials there. So you know, that is a bit intensive and even um, just the part of the kind of decompaction process um, that's essential for preparing the soil for, for digging and for planting. Um, that is more intensive, say, than, 
you would want to do in a no-till system. This is not a no-till um, preparation, at least in the ways that we've done it, because we are kind of taking these intensive preparation steps um, in, you know, the weeks leading up to planting and then planting um, kind of immediately following that soil preparation. So in our case, you know, that was kind of a balance of we know that in order to dig um, down to like a couple feet, um, ideally a meter, and mix in soil amendments, that is disturbing what is in the soil prior. Um, but it's really necessary for compaction um, and also just to get those nutrients in. I think an alternative to that is just taking a longer term approach. And I know other um, Milwaukee forests have done this instead of just not wanting to either like disturb some existing um, plants that are there or not wanting to or having the access to the equipment that can make a quick and intensive preparation and instead looking one or two years out and over um, the course of seasons you know applying amendment like um, compost mulch compost tea and trying to improve the soil that way prior to planting so it is just a matter of like what you have access to, what approach you want to take, and really the time frame as well that you have for a project. All of that kind of needs to be factored in. Makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the challenges uh, and maybe lessons learned uh, from planning and execution of the first one that has influenced your approach taken for your following projects? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, certainly um, some of the kind of site and plant selection questions have, have sort of played in um, the design of the site. You know, so many people have said, oh, this this area would be great to walk in and, and have a path. And so I think in retrospect, I'm like, well, maybe we should have waited a little longer and, and designed it that way. Um, it's definitely made us think about ways of having people engage with the forest and um, be able to kind of visit and commune with it. Um, I think some of the, the species selection, we definitely had um, really successful growth of some of the, the staghorn sumacs that were planted in our first forest that um, I think have begun to sort of shade out or outcompete some of our other plants. And part of that is natural. Part of that is the the succession um, that will take place in the forest of, you know, some things shoot up early and then um, the slower growing trees overtake them eventually. Um, but that's definitely influenced how we plant that species and like where within a site they're set up because they're generally more of an edge, um, edge of a forest finding. So um, some of those things, some of the ways that like biodiversity counts or even planting and maintenance sessions are run um, have, you know, made us think about how do you, as you engage people to come into the forest and um, do maintenance, how do you communicate to them, like, what belongs, what we've planted and, and what doesn't. Um, so all of that has been really valuable and, and has helped us kind of also refine the way that we're able to spend our own time on this because um, it's so much more than just organizing a planting, planting the forest, handing it off to community members and walking away. There is no um, like 
ending or, or natural, even after the kind of stewarding first two, three years are done, there's so much to be learned and monitored about the forest. So I think that's been a ongoing challenge for us to think about as we plant more and more projects and um, try to manage staying involved in all of them, you know, how do we do that well and continue to kind of substantially contribute in each site? So do you have a university or let's say a professor or something kind of taking this on as an ongoing project to kind of like monitor, you know, the temperature and, and the flora and fauna and just like all of these things over a span of time? Yeah, so we, we were engaging with um, Leslie University professors for this. Um, however, they've recently made a lot of changes to their department and to their kind of functioning where I think we're going to need to find another partnership um, in order to carry that forward. Um, and so we're, yeah, we're definitely looking for, for more universities to work with. There's so many in this area. Um, and currently, you know, the monitoring that we do to kind of steward these forests of, yeah, temperature, of biodiversity, ecological function, growth and survival, um, all of this, you know, we can only really do at a basic level. So we definitely need people who are taking that on as part of their research. And there's so much to learn there. So um, I think there's ample opportunity for those who are interested in learning a little bit about local ecological restoration um, to, to get involved in this. And that's an area that we certainly want to grow, especially to not just work on one single forest, but to start accumulating the results um, across these different plantings that have taken place. You know, the four that we've done, there have been a couple um, kind of inspired by this first forest that have been done in the area in, in Brookline, um, Everett, I believe up in Winchester. So, you know, folks are doing all of these things, but they're kind of these disparate projects. And one thing that Bio for Climate has, has wanted to do, and again, kind of need some institutional support for, is really creating a network where we can all learn from one another and establish those best practices and uh, kind of in real time, share the results of what's working well um, and where growth or biodiversity is uh, kind of flagging. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So what are maybe some of the ways that you and others are enjoying the rewards of these forests, uh, not just on the scientific, but also just on the human and social aspects? And what uh, has been the most rewarding part of, of your job? Wow, that, that's a great question. Certainly just visiting the forest is, is my absolute favorite part of my job. Um, just being in that space um, and often I'm, I'm doing that with a purpose of, of maintenance or monitoring but it is so much more than just like oh I'm here to collect data and this is uh, a purely informational experience you know it is such a like a mentally physically spiritually rewarding thing to be in that space and again yeah have that realization of this wasn't here a few years ago um, and in the span of 
you know, months of planning, but really the span of a couple of weeks of, of physical work, a day of planting work, this whole system has been established. And that's something that I find rewarding personally. And I also find it really rewarding to hear from other people in the community. Like I said, you know, there's some people who planted a forest and come back for every single maintenance event or, or really tried to be at as many of them as possible. And they'll share that real feeling of pride in the work. And that's something that I absolutely love about ecological restoration is, you know, we have so many examples of degradation, of, of deforestation, of destruction, of pollution. And I really used to think that when I was thinking about global warming and, and climate change, I used to think, you know, the best that as a human you could do is you know, be less damaging, less destructive, and, and limit the harm that you do. But when you participate in your ecosystem, in this stewarding role, you can see the positive things that you achieve. And that is just so, so healing. And, you know, there are all these kind of mental and physical health benefits of just being around nature, lowering your heart rate, increasing your focus, your mindfulness. But also, you kind of compound that with these projects of you're around nature and you know you had a hand and continue to have a hand in its being there and in its success. So, so I find that really, really special, especially, especially when I'm stressed and feel myself at low capacity to visit the forest. You know, I, I, these trees, these organisms, they don't care if I'm a little behind on my emails or like haven't, haven't done this one task. They're still there growing. They're doing their part. And it is a, an experience of a partnership, certainly with other people, with communities in making this happen, because one person cannot do this alone at all. Um, but also, you know, you're in partnership with these other organisms and that is really really wonderful you know we're really working with allies here and that is so essential i think to, to climate work in general is just um, knowing that you're not alone and knowing that there's so much power in being in community and being in a system and the system is is much more than the sum of its parts so i find that really tremendously rewarding um, and it, it continues to, to motivate me, especially when when I get down or in despair. This is really what I need. That's awesome. I, I have to say that there's a lot of work in the, in the climate realm and just environmental movement in general where, like exactly what you're saying, you can feel a little daunting and you're not really sure if you're making an impact and yeah. are you just running in place and being able to have a place to visit where you can really see tangibly that you've made a difference with, of course with others, but that's awesome. So one project that I came across an article in, and I don't have a lot of the details, but it was a concrete processing plant in India that intentionally planted a Miyawaki forest to clean the air and reduce a lot of the pollutants that were coming from this particular facility. And I, I'm curious if you've run across data like that or or other projects in mind of that, just through some of your studies and things? Yeah, certainly. You know, the forest having these kind of multiple systemic benefits of 
not just, you know, taking in carbon, putting out oxygen, this kind of mechanized way that we look at trees. They do so much more than that. Um, you know, they're improving the soil, um, the water quality, filtering air pollution, um, creating that, that food and habitat for biodiversity. Um, but I think the remediation aspects of it are certainly very interesting to people. The, in fact, the Danahue project is planted in a park that was a former landfill. You know, this was once a city dump turned into a park and then kind of from a park in the lawn area there, we were able to plant a forest. So one of the things of interest to us, I think, again, with um, some institutional, some research support would be to monitor the soil over time. You know, we've done soil tests prior to planting and a couple of since planting. Um, but that's something you could really do, like really in-depth analysis on. And yeah, I think the concrete plant is a great story around that. There's areas that are right on um, like water catchments or the kind of riverbanks and things like that, um, where certainly there's measurable impacts of reducing erosion, buffering kind of stormwater, both the flooding and the drought. Um, and doing things like a water quality assessment, um, even a water flow assessment is is really interesting because um, we can learn so much about how these systems kind of chemically, physically, and biologically um, improve conditions around them. Yeah, yeah I, I was, I've never forgotten uh, when Gabe Brown was sharing about after having built his soil on his farm and then a 13 inch rain event in like one day and his neighbor had a lake and he didn't even have ponding. I mean, yeah. it doesn't speak to you of like what the capacity of soil and the soil sponge and all that fun stuff is. It's like, wow. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it's like, those are the tangible visible impacts, but you also know from the research that Water that has, or sorry, soil that has more carbon, more nutrients, also holds more water. So, so that's coming in with all of those kind of additional benefits. And I think that again is just the power of ecological restoration that this is really working on multiple levels by design. And that's exactly the type of solution that we need right now. You know, when we're just looking at one metric, often it being just carbon, that's so misleading because um, you could just plant a monocrop plantation of trees and say, hey, this is sucking in all this carbon. Um, but the system actually isn't healthy over time, often dies out, often is not at all neutral, is very damaging in terms of like the water, um, in terms of the biodiversity. So all of these things um, are, are really essential to consider. And I love when you see the imagery, the videos, like all of these um, very visceral um, pieces of evidence of, oh, this system is getting healthier and more complex over time. It's, it's so wonderful. So if your ideas and your experience and your wisdom were all wrapped up in seeds of potential action that you could give to others, what advice would you give someone who is also considering a Miyawaki forest in their area? So I'm considering you as a leader, a community leader. So that's a question. Appreciate that and honored by that. Um, I would say first understand your your ecosystem. Um, what has 
been degraded that you want to reverse? You know, what is it you're trying to restore? And included in that is is the question, you know, is a Miyawaki forest the suitable intervention that you want to make? You know, here in, in the Northeast, um, we're restoring the natural forest ecosystem. Um, in a lot of places, you have a different type of ecosystem. You have a wetland, you have a grassland, you have a prairie, um, and there are other interventions you can make to restore that ecosystem. And in addition to kind of choosing to do a Milwaukee forest, what kind of forest did you have there? Um, you know, is it dry deciduous forest? Is it predominantly hardwood? All of that is a really essential part of the process. Um, and then the second part that I would really emphasize, and I think a lot of people are thinking this way too, um, is what kind of human and community relationship is, is part of this project because these don't succeed when it's kind of imposed on a group of people. So what aspects are you building in to learn from the forest to continue to engage with it? Uh, I think those two things on a very basic level are, are kind of where to start. Like who are you going to be working with to make this happen? Um, and, and what do you want to achieve? Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, so what resources, maybe a book or website or a film, has been particularly inspiring to you? Maybe pre-project or post-project? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, my, I mean, certainly post-project, because this was published um, after Danny He Park was done and, and kind of in the process of planning other forests, um, Mini Forest Revolution is a really excellent resource. So, so Hannah Lewis, who used to work on our research compendium at Fire for Climate, um, she's the person who introduced us to Milwaukee Forests based on research and her experience um, helping plant one in France. And she wrote this really excellent resource um, that's both kind of a compilation of different case studies of Milwaukee Forests and a kind of basic how-to. So I recommend for people who are trying to learn more to start there, um, there's a lot of really great information from a forest on Milwaukee forests. Um, but you know, even prior to working on this project, I was really, really inspired by Judy Schwartz's uh, *The Reindeer Chronicles*, and she's written some really amazing books on ecological restoration. But I think that one is a great place to start in understanding kind of these different aspects of soil, water, biodiversity, and how they all relate to climate. Um, yeah, and then prior to even starting to work in climate, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown um, really turned me on to these kind of ways of thinking about um, systems and kind of opportunities for creating like emergent stability and regeneration, um, thinking about biomimicry, and all of that I found incredibly inspiring for, you know, what it is possible to do when you act in right relationship with your ecosystem, with the people and communities around you. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so maybe what is the most important lesson that you've learned over your career at this point? Wow. <laughs> that is such a tough question because I'm constantly learning and constantly humbled. 
Yeah, I think probably it, it has to do with, um, you know, being humbled and, and feeling that sense of um, community of I am not, even as I take on this role of kind of sharing on our projects and often that's really putting me in this like expertise position. And I do, I have experience, I have knowledge, I do want to share these things, but I am always learning, you know, I'm always um, just taking in kind of the lessons from the forest themselves, the life in them, and then the people also that, that I encounter both in these projects and who have done other projects kind of along these lines. It's not a question of, you know, you've planted it, it's three years old, has it succeeded? I think I, I get that question very often, you know, is this a success or a failure? And failure is a little bit easier to understand when, you know, when something has completely died off or something like that. Um, but you really have to have patience when you're working with natural systems and you have to have humility because this is not about um, humans coming in and imposing a vision and trying to control what is there. You can't control it. You can participate in it. You can try and jumpstart that ecosystem, but you're not going to control what it looks like or what happens thereafter. And so you really kind of have to be humble about it and, and realize that you're a collaborator and a co-creator. Yeah. Well said. So how would you like people to contact you who might want to learn more or volunteer if they're in, in your area? Absolutely. I would love... Um, to engage with folks, and I think primarily through our website, bioforclimate.org, with a four. Um, and there's information on our Miyawaki Forest Program there, about the forest that we've planted, an opportunity to um, kind of indicate your volunteer interest for one or multiple sites, um, and some materials for learning more about the Miyawaki method, about the forest that we've planted, about other partners. Um, some of the research. So I would say certainly our website and our various social media platforms um, and my information is on there too. You can always reach out to staff. People sign up for our mailing list. We continue to share updates on like forest meetups, maintenance days, ways to get involved. Um, and what we're seeing when we visit the forest and kind of assess its, its growth and its progress. So we'd love for folks in the area or folks uh, beyond the area who are just interested to find us that way. Um, and we also, you know, update folks on kind of when we're doing speaking and presentations and things like that. So I uh, would love to see this carried forward and help people start up their own projects. I'm curious, how many have you planted now in that area that you're in? So we've done four so far. We're planning an additional two for this spring and fall um, and yeah we've helped we've talked with people um, who are doing so many more as well at that tremendous enthusiasm so I, I hope that continues to to grow and to kind of carry forward um, with with a lot of you know integrity and success thank you so much I really appreciate your taking the time to share that with us Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here and I'm really excited to 
kind of learn more from from your work and, and from other interviewees and I love just go green locally you know like <laughs> global thinking and, and local acting and I think that that community level work is just so essential for our resilience and, and for our transformations. If you haven't yet visited your local green online hub, then please visit gogreenlocally.org and check out the directories for events, groups, businesses, online resources, and local support listings for your area.